everyone, welcome back to the show. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. We are joined uh, again today, a repeat appearance on the podcast by Dr. Dan Green at HSS. Um, he did, really doesn't need much of an introduction at all, but he's a specialist in pediatric and adolescent sports medicine. And we're going to be talking about one of his recent articles today. It was in AJSM and it is entitled MRI Signal Intensity of Quadriceps Tendon Autograft and Hamstrings Tendon Autograft one year after ACL reconstruction in adolescent athletes. So a little bit of a mouthful, but in short, the authors used MRIs to compare quad versus hamstring ACLs. They got MRIs six and 12 months post-op. And specifically, they looked at signal intensity in the graft. The reason they did that is because other research has shown that increased fluid in the graft basically means it's weaker, less vascularized, less well incorporated. And they found that both graphs had lots of signal at six months. And at 12 months, uh, the quad graphs had significantly less signal. The hamstring graphs really hadn't changed. So the conclusion was that the quad is better incorporated and stronger after a year. Now, there's a lot of stuff I'm excited to ask you about, Dr. Green, about this study. But is there anything that I missed or anything that we should throw in there in a sort of brief overview? No, no, no. You know, that's a great summary. And we all know as clinicians when we, when we see a native ACL or a reconstructed ACL that's taken a hit, or uh, has been stressed that the signal's just not as basically as dark, what we're used to seeing if it's a T1 type image or it's got signal if it's a edema image on MRI. So we, we know that instinctually, we see it with our eyes. And this, we wanted to add a little bit of data to the quad ACL world. And we thought this population was unique in because we don't often get opportunities to look at MRIs six months and a year later and we do it in our immature patients, basically to get an early peek at the growth plate. While the growth arrest is low in this group, we have through the years picked up a few cases early by having these post-op MRIs. So the purpose of the MRIs in our clinical setting is to check on the growth, the health of the growth plate really. But then we had this data of post-op MRIs with graphs and we had switched a few years ago from hamstring soft tissue grafts in these scotally immature folks to quad, and we had an opportunity to look at them. And as the paper shows, clearly at a year, the quad grafts have less edema signal in the MRIs. I, I thought that was really interesting because I think myself and a lot of us really are starting to feel pretty good about the quad compared to other grafts. And this, to me, sort of suggested a mechanism Maybe it's the graft incorporating better, not just the graft intrinsically being stronger or more reliably giving a good diameter or any of the other factors that we hope for with a graft. Do you have an idea sort of why it would be incorporating better with the quad grafts? Well, I think um, one major thought is when we're doing the hamstrings, we're, we're often using six strands or eight strands as time we fold it over. And while it didn't come out in this paper, we have more than one time on a post-op MRI seen an ACL reconstructed by a hamstring with one or two strands kind of floating in the notch, that one or two of those strands didn't incorporate like the others. Huh. And we, I think we all, while it's not proven without a reasonable doubt, we all do think that this lack of edema in the graft and even at the bone interface suggests better incorporation. I was wondering if it's because there's more healing surface on a quad. You know, we cut out the quad and you, you almost have circumferential healing surface by the time you separate it from everything you took it out from, whereas the hamstring still has this epitenon around it and this sort of sheath. And I wonder if that 
is preventing it from having ingrowth of vessels or some other in some other way blocking the incorporation. You know, that's an interesting uh, an interesting thought. I, it's definitely comparing apples and oranges to some sense. So we know the quad is a ro- robust graft. We know it's strong on the back table. I think it's a little bit trickier to um, link to an adjustable cortical button if you're used to the hamstring. Yes. But it's a nice, big, thick one piece, you know. And and then we didn't, you know, we haven't talked about it yet, is how do you how harvest a quad? Which technique? We have been using... Um, full thickness, open graft harvest without bone, obviously. Um, we know some of our colleagues have good success with partial thickness and s- some colleagues even don't even repair the defect. Um, so there's so many ways to do it, but we have seen a dramatic decrease in our failure rate. You know, remember, why did we all, why are people switching? Uh, these young kids, the eighth, ninth, 10th grader, they're going back to high school sports, a high risk sport, soccer, lacrosse, basketball, football, they are at a, such a high risk. It's not like we're doing an ACL reconstruction in a 39-year-old relief baseball pitcher. who They're a pro athlete. I would t- tell you, everybody in POSDA knows this, that the, the nine-year-old or the, the ninth grader or the eighth grader is much higher risk than that pro athlete at the end of his career. Right. They're going to go jump right back into a high school sport with kids bigger than them and not even have the neuromuscular functional skills to, to do that sport as safe as they probably should be. So we all saw that in this high-risk group of kind of eighth, ninth graders who were getting hamstrings, their failure rates are 20% in many, many studies. And seeing these initial results with the soft tissue quad led us to, led us to try it in this age group because in many of our European colleagues that were using the quad, the failure rate was approaching that of a BTB. And, you know, one of the obvious differences between the BTB and the quad is the bone incorporation in the tunnel versus the soft tissue. This study uh, looked at the maturation of the graft in the joint, sort of the mid-substance of the graft. Were you able to tell anything, or do you think you'd be able to tell anything from your, all your MRI data about how well the quad graft is incorporating to bone versus just sort of the mid-substance of the graft? I think you certainly could maybe get a sense of uh, some signal there. I think it's something that's probably worth for further further study. Do you have an intrinsic feeling about it? For example, have you, um, you know, with a much larger practice than, than I have, have you had some that you've gone back and looked at and seen, you know, have you seen incorporation when you've gone to take a, another look at these quad tendons? I know. I think there's good incorporation. I think it's yeah. behaving well. I think it's behaving well. And we all know that the, we expect to see incorporation in these graphs, whether it's a hamstring or a quad, in the vast majority of times. The question is, where, where are the outliers? Where are the failures? Yeah, uh, and most of the time when we have a graft rerupture, many of the times it's it's mid substance, you know, which would suggest that the incorporation is pretty good. Yeah, great point. I just wanted to highlight, you know, you already mentioned it, but I was very interested in this study how you guys use uh, regular MRIs at six to twelve months to screen for growth arrest. I usually get full length alignment films, which doesn't, uh, you know, answer all your questions about growth arrest. Uh, I was wondering if you, you have any. Anything else you could share about sort of your experience with that and what you've been able to pick up on? You know, we are still very cautious and aware of a small, whether it's less than 1% or in that 1% range, cases of growth disturbance or growth modulation after transficeal ACL. It's not high. And often these are older adolescent kids. So even if we do note a change, it many times doesn't require a surgical intervention, but if you do see it early, 
then you can intervene before deformity happens, before the valgus happens, or the you could even close the other side. And you know, if if there was three years of growth remaining, and you're concerned about leg length developing, and you see an early growth disturbance, then you have more options. So it's so rare. I don't know if it's really um, we're talking about too much here because because we all know the the risks are low. They're just not zero. Well, that's, that's a great segue because beyond this study, I really would like to hear a little bit more about your ACL practice in general. I, I think you already answered my first question about sort of your balance between hamstring and quads in these young patients. It sounds like you've switched pretty universally to quad tendon. Yes, that's uh, correct. Switch, switched over. And then it sounded like in this study that the skeletally immature kids were getting all epiphyseal and the older kids were getting traditional adult transficeal grafts. Is that sort of your practice or are there some points where you're doing a hybrid or other approaches to the growing athletes? My partner, Dr. Cardasco and Dr. Fabricant and I were in the, the Pluto group, you know, the pediatric ligament understanding treatment options that Min Coker's group. And so it's, it's fun to look at what folks are doing around the country. And that study has ceased enrollment. And we put in a number of epiphyseal ACLs in that study group. And we're watching how, how those do in a prospective manner. And we're, there are a number of transficeal patients in that study, obviously modified Macintosh, and some hybrids, but not that many. In terms of hybrids, we were maybe 10 years ago, we were doing them relatively frequently. And I think it was might have been just a blip in our statistics, because we talked earlier about how that 20% failure rate with the hamstrings, but many of those were hybrids. So early on, mm. we kind of stopped doing hybrids and we're doing epiphyseals versus transficeals with the epiphyseal patients, all epiphyseal patients being kind of greater than three years remaining. Since uh, the Pluto enrollment has stopped, I have transitioned more in my practice. I'm doing less epiphyseals and more modified Macintoshes. Oh, really? Right. So, so I'm waiting to kind of see what the Pluto data tells us. And part of it is just the epiphyseal. I think it's a great surgery. We've reported following, you know, Dr. Anderson's leadership and many centers are continuing, continuing with that approach. And I think one of the best things about the all epiphyseal approach is for some reasons I don't understand the revision rate or failure rate is less or better than the trans ficeal group. Mm -hmm. So that I think is really, really interesting. Uh, when we started this journey 10 years ago, though, we really didn't have long-term outcomes for the modified Mac. So that's one of the reasons that I, we followed Dr. Anderson's all epiphyseal technique. But now 10 years later, we have more information about the modified Mac. Those kids are doing well. And when we do the all epiphyseal in the OR, in our hands, we felt we really had to do uh, 3D imaging in the OR, and it was okay. a little bit time-consuming. And so with the more robust long-term data with the modified back, we've transitioned a lot of our cases to modified back, whereas five years ago, we would have definitely been doing all epiphyseal. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. That was, again, you answered my follow-up question about sort of but why I make have, that switch, but it is but the technical ease is certainly appealing. Which is, you know, related to this paper. And it's not saying I know the answer. I, I'm really looking forward to the uh, results that the Pluto study group is going to put out. Yeah, absolutely. So now that you are free from enrollment and to make your own decisions, would it be possible for you to sort of break down that into like a concise algorithm, how you're deciding which to do in which patients? Or is it pretty much just 
more than a couple years of growth, modified Macintosh, and above that, standard trans seal adult style. Essentially what I've come to. Got it. So it's okay. Out of three years of growth remaining, it's going to be a modified Mac. There may be a discussion about all seal. We can talk and individualize it with the patient. But there is definitely a switch in, in our practice uh, to do a little more modified Macs than we used to. Great. I think that's very valuable for me and uh, hopefully for the listeners to hear too. And, you know, the other thing about your technique that came up in the study was it sounds like you're doing uh, almost all all inside technique. Um, is that accurate? All these patients were getting all inside? Correct. Okay. And um, what do you feel like are the biggest benefits to that technique? Due to a retrograde drilling. It's a socket, not a tunnel. So you're not breaking through the cortex of either the metaphysis or epiphysis of the tibia or femur. Because it's a socket, not a tunnel, and you're using uh, suspensory fixation, the graft can be a little shorter. Mm-hmm. It's theoretically bone-preserving smaller skin incisions, maybe less pain post-op, you know, whatever your decision of technique, it's just, it's really more about putting it in the right spot than it is which fixation you're using or if you're using tunnel versus sockets. But in our hands, I started working with my partner, Frank Cordesco, because he was uh, doing all inside technique. And initially there's a little bit, you know, there's some um, technical tricks to it. So, you know, it's a fun technique. I think when Small incisions, taking less bone, shorter graft, and it seems to to work out fine. And that's another great segue because I know you've been involved in developing some of the instrumentation and techniques and sort of the thought behind that approach. Are there any sort of top pearls that you would tell to you tell to your fellows, or you know, mm-hmm. hypothetically, someone speaking with you over a podcast episode who's also on the learning curve of these procedures? Well, I, you know, I, we still use. Uh, Oftentimes before we're reaming, we're, we're going to check an x-ray and, and see if we like our position of our socket, whether we're using epiphyseal, all epiphyseal or transphyseal techniques. Okay. I think, on the, I think on the tibia, one of the neat things about working around the epiphysis of the tibia, I feel I almost don't need x-ray because with a finger gliding up the proximal tibia, you can usually feel the growth plate. So mm-hmm. I rely on that tactile sense of where the growth plate is. I also... Through the years of New York and being in New York and seeing some of the growth arrests that have happened trans with a transphyseal technique, um, a lot of times it's not the growth arrest is happening near the tibial tubercle. And I wonder if there's accidentally some damage there when people harvest the hamstring. So I think it's very the the hamstring insertion at the pes, if you just pull it hard and rip it off. It's going to include periosteum that's right next to the tibial tubercle, and that's a potential site of growth arrest. So I always, if I'm using a hamstring harvest, I'm always cutting it sharply with a knife and not ripping it, ripping it off uh, manually. So those are just some little thoughts that pop in the head. Yeah, that's great. And so that's sort of specifically for those skeletally mature. What about just for the the more mature ones doing an all inside? Are there any any things you sort of learned or you've seen your fellows struggle with that uh, you find it's helpful to, to avoid certain pitfalls? If for me, the big step is just graph preparation. It's a little technically challenging on the back table to use uh, the adjustable cortical buttons and the mm-hmm. reverse suspensory fixation. And once your team is used to that, uh, I think it goes very well. When you suspensory fixation, if you blow out the back wall of the tibia just a little bit, um, you still have suspensory fixation. So it's not as big of a problem as if you were uh, using a screw there. And and if you're doing a, a lateral augmentation on the outside, 
Mm -hmm. Um, You can do your harvest for that at the beginning and really kind of not directly visualize where that button's coming off the femur, but tactilely, you know, know that you're get you know, get a a sense of exactly where that dispensary button is uh, even through that harvest incision. So I don't want to take too much of your time because that can be a can of worms, but what is your current status for the uh, lateral augmentation? Is that part of your practice regularly right now? We're um, often offering uh, lateral augmentation, uh, modified Lemaire technique with an ITB autograph to what we consider to be our high-risk patients, certainly revision, severe laxity, reeker bottom. And we'll have a discussion about it sometimes to our high-risk athletes at the eighth or ninth graders who want to go mm-hmm. back to who are planning to go back at a high level of soccer lacrosse basketball football skiing yeah that's great i mean that's we've talked about that a lot on this podcast and it certainly seems where all the literature is pointing and then lastly I, i've been following the literature out of your institution for a while on how to decide when to send kids back to back to sports it seems like just based on the papers you guys have published your thinking's been changing over the years and advancing I was wondering what what's your sort of state of practice right now in terms of when you're getting ACL patients back to sports? Yeah, I don't think we're doing anything different than what our all the, the all of our colleagues are doing around the country. We're trying not to use uh, the time and really go into the to the kids' function. I'm feeling more comfortable relying on the what we call qualitative movement assessment. If a, if a child's a great runner with endurance and Functionally is doing good squats, good jumps, good step down. You know, I'm okay clearing them if they meet that milestone at seven, eight months. But some folks just aren't clearing it at a year and a half. So I think it goes back to how hard the kids work with their strength and functional movements in their core and how well they uh, participate in those uh, ACL recovery and ACL injury prevention programs. And the kids that are all in are, are bouncing back quick. Think, I think better than historically uh, we'd expect them to be, but there are still some kids if they're not motivated and it's been a year and their functional movements are terrible. We're, we're advising them against playing a high risk sport, but remember, you know, return to play. We all use it and we all think we know what it means, but Am I letting a kid return to play if I say go on the swim team, don't play soccer? I guess I am. I tell <laughs> I like to tell soccer players, I don't think you're ready for soccer. Why don't you join the track team and do long distance? Is that return to play? So that's another way how you define it. That's another thought. I think um, I like having a, a basketball player or or a soccer player do three months of track before they play get back on their court of the field. And is that return to sport? Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> I would lean towards no. <laughs> well, that's great. One last question. With these with these sort of functional testings, do you feel like you're getting many patients back before that sort of historical nine-month cutoff that we've told people about? I would if you asked me that three or four years ago, I would say never. Now really? I'm seeing a certain kind of stubborn, strong athlete. I'm like, <laughs> like he how is this possible? You look so good at six months. Yeah, now, I think it might be the commitment of the kid or that all of the therapists are really all in and they're really getting these kids on weights early and really working them hard, getting them sweaty. They're not just doing the little casual 10 minute rehab visit. Yeah. But you also, you know, we don't know there's multivariable. We're doing more quads. We're doing more lateral sided augmentation as a, as a combination of all these things. Yeah. Well, I mean, this study is case in point, a great example of why we might be 
able to get him back sooner and actually have some evidence and sort of a mechanism behind it. Well, thank you again for, for your time. Congratulations on another great study. And just thank you for all the effort you guys put into research, especially these practical studies. I can tell you as a young surgeon, uh, they definitely shape my practice and my daily uh, clinical decisions. I appreciate it. Look forward to meeting up with you either at Prism or Pasta. Absolutely. Absolutely.